Hi everyone, I'm Udo Wander from BMW Motorrad Munich. Welcome to Ride and Talk. I am chatting with Andy Dukes about a special project that I'm involved with and I'd really like to share it with you. Greetings all, Andy Dukes here and great to have you back again. As we enter the festive season, in a year unlike any other we've ever lived through, it's a good time to reflect on how fortunate those of us are who are healthy, living in a safe and caring environment with good prospects for the future. This isn't the case for everyone, of course, and I always enjoy meeting and talking to people who like to freely offer their time, their skills, and in some cases their money, to help others less fortunate than themselves. Today's guest on Ride and Talk is Udo Wattendorf, a colleague responsible for the development of BMW Motorrad helmets, among other things. For several years now, Udo has been supporting a project in Bolivia that gets kids off the street puts a roof over their heads and teaches them the skills they need to survive and prosper in a world where the odds are rarely stacked in their favour. Let's meet Udo and hear his story. Udo, it's great to have you here on Ride and Talk. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thanks a lot, Andy. I'm so happy that you organised all that and you realised all that and it's just amazing. So tell me about your history with BMW Motorrad and your current role with the company. Um, Andy, I started at BMW in, let me think, in January 2002 as a carbon fiber expert. I worked in some fields. Um, let's say I started after my studies in aeronautical research. Then I moved on to Italy, working in the medical sector, always carbon fiber process and material and BMW had opened up a department for material and process development for carbon fiber structures. And my wife and I wanted a change of scenery. Coming from Italy, where we had worked for some years, so I just changed my working place and we went to BMW, or I went to BMW. After nine years in carbon fiber process development at the BMW plant in Landshut, I moved on to the rider skier department and started working in helmet development in Munich. And that's where you still find me today. Well, you're lucky enough to uh, live in the beautiful surroundings of Munich. So where do you like to ride and explore by motorcycle, Udo? <laughs> I like to ride and explore really all terrain and landscapes. Hey, Munich, we are yeah, so lucky to have the Alps nearby with all the passes from unpaved to nearly autobahn. All you can dream of as a rider. In our time in Italy, Andy, we wake up early in the morning looking at each other and headed out on the bike. And in the evening, we found ourselves in places like Corsica without any plans, just riding along and... Having to buy some t-shirts even because we did not expect to end up there for four days. But I also traveled a lot in Africa by cheap, especially in India, where I traveled from north to south with backpack and by public transport. I absolutely would love to ride from Srinagar in Kashmir to Leh, Ladakh and Manila by bike. I did this three times on four wheels. I love to cross India by bike just for six months on my own. Ah, this would be a dream to do. I love traveling on my own. And I remember, Andy, you once said, traveling solo makes you vulnerable. But on the other hand, it's this vulnerability 
that opens doors. And I love that saying because it's so true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember saying that. I remember writing that, in fact, and it was certainly true in my case, Udo. So what is your what is your current bike? And how are you enjoying it then? Maybe you've got more than one. <laughs> you will cry with laughter. Um, I still have my student bike, one of the first Ducati Monsters, 900cc. Somehow it's a horror bike. No injection, just two carbs, big bar cylinders, 980cc. And the second bike, this one I brought from Italy, a Motoguzzi Irone Sport, built in 1953. I dismantled and reassembled the motor. <laughs> I don't know how many times, Andy, just to get her to work. And some years ago, I had a BMW GS HP, which I sold five years ago. And it was just a wow, amazing bike. These days, I'm just lucky enough to be able to take any BMW bike for the weekend or for the eternal week and just to go for a ride and test helmets or just be on my own with the bike or together on the bike. There is no need to ride the Ducati anymore and... My wife always laughed like crazy. When I came back home after two hours ride with the Ducati, I just ended up in bed sleeping and I didn't want to eat anymore. I just wanted sleep. When I'm on the BMW bike, I just spent five, six hours on the bike. We, I come home and ask, so this evening, where do we go to eat? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of people listening, thinking that you've, you've got a dream job. But seriously, though, Udo, tell us about how it is to be developing a new piece of rider gear, such as the System 7 helmet that you were involved with. And, and what sort of challenges are there when you're trying to keep up with the demand when a product like that is so successful? That's a, a special story. Okay. When I see someone on the road with my, with my product, such as the System 7 helmet, ah, look there, System 7 helmet. And of course, I see this helmet. I re recognize this helmet from a long distance. And even after four years after market lunch, I'm super happy when I see these people walking to get in contact with them. And I quite often, I ask them incognito how satisfied they are. When they have an issue with the helmet, it still does upset me, Andy. <laughs> but of course, I always try to help them resolve it. Not incognito anymore, of course. And I quite often end up with the address of these people in my pocket. As for when it comes to the success of a, of a product, that was the other part of your question. That's a real challenge indeed. But it can be a rewarding one. Just an example. We planned the System 7 helmet with a production run of 35,000 helmets, more or less, each year. And this was just the level of the System 6 helmet, which had been a very successful helmet over all these years. But when the System 7 came out, we had dealer orders for nearly 50,000 helmets. Real orders! And we were totally overwhelmed. But I also have to admit that with one eye crying and the other one laughing, of course. We did not have the workers on board to realize this volume. So we had to blend more shifts, more production, working on Saturdays. No holidays could be taken in the first three months. That year before marketing introduction, I found myself in Italy nearly every week. And I ended up really exhausted. Because when it is your baby 
I am always so much emotionally involved and just all hard. And of course, it is at the same time also super stressful and exhausting, but everything touches you enormously. Working with a premium brand like BMW Motorrad and being involved in developing quality products, that must give you great and real satisfaction, Udo. Yeah, it, it, it is like that, like, like you said. At working at BMW is just amazing. You find a lot of super skilled people here who are just burning with ambition. They love to develop or just get products on the road. And of course, a lot of suppliers just want to work together with you. But developing products can be even super stressful. I already mentioned it with the System 7 helmet. And I remember in some of the most intense development phases, I had discussion, even fights with my designers that have been so emotional and intense that even pencils flew through the air at some point. The project became everybody's baby. We all fought like crazy for it. We still laugh about these periods when we think back. And these situations return and return after all these years with every new product. I hope it would become better with my age. But forget that. It seems to me that I was not built with that idea in mind. <laughs> Now, I can see 100% that you are a passionate guy and you really care about what you do and great for you, absolutely. So did living a good life in Germany make you think about other people in different parts of the world who aren't so fortunate where they're born, growing up and living, of course, Udo? Mm, Andy, I would say it's more in my DNA thinking about other people's situation or just just caring for them. So, for example, there was a time I worked in Mother Teresa's hospice in Kolkata in India. And in Munich, I've supported a young guy for the past six years who lives with this nun because of very difficult family situation. Yes, all this is very natural to me. It makes me happy to get young people to realize their potential, to make them see what they can become or even what they already are. Just great souls. Yeah. Yeah, understood. And you've been uh, supporting people a long way from home, which is what I want to move on to now, because there's a very special lady who you've been involved with in terms of the support that work that you do. So when and where did you first hear about Doris and the work that she was doing with this project in South America? Yes, you speak of Doris. I would say the project found me and not the other way around. I'm not the guy who plans and decides a lot. I see a project and I just follow the energy and go by intuition. And within one day, everything is often done and organized and <laughs> booked the flight ticket and so on. Calcutta, India, Africa, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil. As a student, I worked for eight months in Brazil. Whatever it is, it's just somehow it catches me. And my mother is always totally shocked and when it comes to these projects. She stands in front of me just crying. Why can't you just do normal things? <laughs> and yes, you know, we never stop. You know that we never stop being the children of our mothers. Nevertheless, how old we are. I saw the video of the guys and the situation on YouTube, the Luz de Esperanza video. So it was so clear to me where to go. Luz de Esperanza. So. Tell me about this project. What inspired you to find out more information? And how did you get in contact with Doris? My goal was a project in South America to learn and practice Spanish. 
That was my motivation. I speak French and Italian quite well. So I wanted to add Spanish as a further language. And I studied really very intensively the months before heading for Bolivia. But anyway, I found the project on the internet. It was published by V Social, an organization that once was active somehow with Luz de Esperanza and Doris. And so I was able to get the mobile number of Doris. The soul of the project, aged 62, she, I think, yeah, Doris is 62. She's a nun from Peru, and she worked together with the street kids to build up their new homes instead of living and dying in the streets. And my inspiration was that the guys have learned to organize nearly everything on their own there. They cook by themselves, bake bread on their own, plant vegetables, look after the animals, wash their clothes, help each other, study somehow, somehow or just try to learn reading and writing. So why South America and Bolivia in particular, Udo? I mean, there are other people closer to home that need help. Yes, of course. You're, you're right with saying there are people next to your home. And for six years, I already mentioned that. I've been supporting a young guy. Nowadays, he's 18 years old, who comes from a very poor family with a very difficult background of drugs, both parents, criminality and so on. Andy, this is part of my everyday life. It's nothing special. After the very exhausting System 7 project, I just had to escape. I just had to head away for something totally off the line. And <laughs> later on, I realized that it was even outside of my limits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a long way from home, that's for sure. So, so what attracted you to this particular place, though, and the people who live there? I want to live and be part of the project, really be totally integrated and experience everything they do, getting along with their lives, their problems, living like they do and together with them in the slums, even in the slums. And these zones, and you know that, are ego-free zones and I love that. It's just like what you see is what you get, very clear and true, a long way from home. Yes, but <laughs> to experience yourself, you have to leave your comfort zone. Staying at home is not the best place to do that. <laughs> it's quite difficult to reach your stars from sitting on the couch at home. So is it true that you learned Spanish so you could go and visit these people you were planning on helping? I started to learn Spanish one year in advance in a very intensive way. And before I went to Bolivia, I was in Cusco, Peru, to have face-to-face -face lessons, five hours a day for three weeks, to learn Spanish and even to get used to the altitude. Um, Cusco is 3,400 meters. And, but El Alto, where I wanted to join the guys, was or is 4,200 meters. Wow, right up in the clouds. How is it to actually live there for three months? And what are the conditions, the living conditions like? Well, you have to know, initially I wanted to stay there for four months. But it was just too hot for me. No warm water, no heating, corrugated tin roofs, no insulation, nighttime below zero degrees. Daytime temperature, 20 degrees in the sun, but only 8 degrees inside the shade. Yeah, you have to know that water boils at 85 degrees at this altitude, which does not really kill off the bacteria. 
so very often I had serious problems with my stomach. There is such a lot of lack of energy, mother energy, that they miss enormously. Or maybe even father energy, but the mother energy that they miss so much is essential. So after three months, I was body-wise so much exhausted that I really took the hands of Doris and told her that I had to leave earlier than planned. And the guys had been shocked because we really became so close. But Doris said that she had been worrying about my situation since really some days. And physically, you know, I'm not very strong. Maybe by mind and will. But losing five kilos was really a big deal for me. Yep, especially at that yeah. altitude. So did you yeah. ever feel unsafe when you were there? Absolutely no. Even when I walked in these no-go areas with Doris, I always felt very safe. Somehow the people maybe knew me from the project. I was I was part of of the family or of the people. And when I walked alone on my own in the surrounding of the project, I really liked that very much just to be on my own. And but I always and I just walked around. I always noticed that some of the guys were following me, hiding themselves that I don't see them or that I don't realize them. They just took care of me. I was really part of the community. And what about things like crime, guns, knives or gangs? Was that happening over there? Yeah, of course. When the boys live in the streets, they are organized in groups. Maybe you call it gangs. They just want to survive. And they have to stick together, therefore. And yes, there is a lot of criminality that has to do with drugs, police, protection services, and so on. And there is no one that hasn't lost one or even more friends because of these situations. So the boys had to get used to this kind of criminality and they react in a very active way, even when it comes to discussions amongst them. And yeah, I remember in the first days, in my first days when we had lunch together, some strong argument came up and I even did not realize what was, why that. And at some point, quite a few of the eating knives disappeared under the table. I did not realize this very fast. But when I did realize that, I just stopped everything with the words, stop guys. There has to be a better way to get along with each other. And from this moment on, I organized twice a week a discussion circle for one and a half hours where we came together to talk and just exchange ideas. And Doris told me that the guys still do these circles in these days. Ah, oh, this is fantastic that they kept that this going. This is. Yeah. And what about some of these young men and women, uh, the ones you've met? Are any of them no longer with us now because of the life on the street? Or mm. Well, the ones that I met, fortunately, no one died since I left, and therefore I'm very thankful. Some of them had a really hard time. For example, Israel, 18 years old, already father of a six-month-old baby, was caught stealing stuff for the baby. Totally natural as a father, having no money, and put into prison for six months. Prison is horrible in La Paz, you have to know. Three weeks later, the mom was caught 
as well and put into prison with a baby, small Pablito. And Doris and I managed to get her out after one month just just by paying money. That's like it works there. And Doris did that. But after three weeks, Pablito, the baby, just died. Just died. And whew, I have to root myself. Sorry for that. Oh, there was Daniel, a 17-year-old guy who, at the age of 12, has been shot right through. And from this time, he could not he could not walk anymore. He had these walking sticks. And he decided to leave the project and go back to live in the streets. And you stay there and think the world is crazy. How can you just go back to the streets? But after three weeks, he returned looking horribly bad full of wounds all over and all the face seriously swollen I don't want I even don't want to know what kind of experience he had to go through no no shocking stories uh, I can yeah. see that that, uh, that yeah, still, really. uh, feels quite painful for you Udo and so what about the people there though do they have any kind of future <laughs> yeah absolutely they have and they really fight for for her future a lot they just would like to go to school and learn something that will enable them to earn their living. The percentage that reach their dream is very low. That's a pity because very often their past just catches up with them and they fall back. But there are quite a few examples of, yeah, of those who did make it out and could even study and end up as an engineer or doctor. But these stories are, are really rare. They are just glad to have an anchor in their life. And from there on, they manage and organize their lives. Yeah. 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 Life goes on for sure. So Yeah. And this area now, because it's been encroached by the slums, are there many new dangers for the young men and young women, of course, of the, of the, uh, of the village? Well, during daytime, I would say that there is no danger and and no one goes out in nighttime. That's really stupid. And generally spoken, the people in the slums, they just don't have a lot of money. But this does not mean that they are close to criminality. They just want to live their lives and have a quiet and safe life. That's it. At the same time, the slums are a no-go area for the police. So somehow it might be a zone without law. Quite a lot of times you see the message painted on the walls, we shoot immediately. Or you see life-size dolls hanging on utility poles for det and deterrence. <laughs> so it's, uh, you stand there and uh, it's, uh, okay. And on the dusty gravel roads, the people build speed breakers with big stones. So when someone wants to escape by car, he has to drive slalom. Yeah, sometimes during nighttime you hear some shootings, but not that often. I think it's much more dangerous for the girls. And you see quite a lot of papers such as wanted posters where mothers are searching for their young daughters, 14 years old, 15 years old, 16 years old, who have been seized and taken to the mines and forced to prostitution. And I always wanted to go there because this touched me enormously and still does and I talked several times with Doris to help there to go there but 
she made it very, very clear to me that this is an absolute no-go area for me. Totally without any police there and without any law. Guarantee for me to come out dead. And so I decided not to go there. No, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible yeah. story. I mean, shocking. It really yeah. is. But yeah, this look, is just... Laura the Jungle, you can't, uh, yeah. you can't make yeah. a difference just there. But where you can make a difference, obviously, is, is within the project. So have you been able to see how, how is your support actually making a difference? Oh, Andy, <laughs> I can tell you how life changed for all these guys of Luz Esperanza since we help and it's it's really nothing about me. It's all about all the friends who support us with the very unstable political situation in Bolivia. Well, all the supporting parties retracted themselves from Bolivia and at the end really no financial help was in sight and when I was there the situation for the project was really hard and insecure and they really did not know how to proceed. Besides the financial help, there is at the same level our support in a, I would call it psychological way. All the guys and people who make the project, who make the project happen, feel carried and supported by us. And this gives them, and Doris tells me all the time, that effect. This gives them strength, inner strength. And I'm in contact with Doris by WhatsApp, well, each, uh, every couple of days and sometimes even more. I'm totally up to speed on what's going on there. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a great job. Yeah. Are, are there ever colleagues within BMW Motorrad who are also supporting this project with you? <laughs> and such a lot of BMW Motorrad people support the project. I have no idea in these days how many and each month with 5 to 50 euro, no matter how much. Uh, well, I've been qu quite overwhelmed because there was no one who hesitated for not even two seconds to help. Yeah, that's great. And the money goes a long way over there, of yeah, course. So, but yeah. what changes have you been able to see in the people? Are they more optimistic about the future? Yes. And our help made such a big difference there because they feel supported they feel seen, they got an outlook, and the guys have really learned not to give up. They had to learn how to survive in the streets with no parents or adult person at their side. Yeah, I heard also that state aid has been cut in Bolivia. So is there any other support that this project receives? Mm, when I traveled from Peru to Bolivia by bus and we crossed the border, I was really shocked by the poverty in Bolivia even compared to Peru. And I have seen a lot of poverty in India and in some other countries. But in Bolivia, there is absolutely no aid or support from the government. There are just too many poor people. And the lack of financial support is just too big to overcome. So what about Doris then? Uh, is she a guardian angel? You know, what kind of difference has she made to the lives of those in this community? Well, she's aged 62, and in these days, Doris is not present at the project every day, you have to know. But she comes twice or three times a week, maybe four times. But you should see the guys when they talk to Doris. For them, she's an angel. 
She saved them from life on the street. She gave them a home. She gave them love and a feeling of being welcome that maybe they never experienced. Their mother sent them on the street. They, they just said goodbye to them. So they never really experienced before that kind of feelings. Yeah, difficult one. So if you had to sum up, though, what, what would you say is the most important kind of help that these people can receive? <laughs> oh, this question touches me enormously, Andy. <laughs> the biggest kind of help that they can receive is that you listen to them. Yet that you listen to them on eye level, heart to heart. The street kids are very on-off. You reach them by heart or you absolutely do not reach them. When you do not reach them by heart, they totally ignore you. And you feel like you're sitting in a freezer when you talk to them. The other way around is like you would speak When you open up your heart, you speak directly to a soul when you talk to them, when you speak with them, when you discuss with them. It's just going from heart directly to heart. There's no way to escape. And of course, at the end of the day, they just need something to eat and drink and maybe even a roof over their heads, which is luxury for them. And this can only be afforded by some money. This is what we are organizing here this is an international thing i think <laughs> yeah for sure money makes the world go right yeah i think i already yeah. asked you but how often are you in contact with emuda yeah at least three to four times a week in some situation ten, ten times a day or an internal evening the reaction time of doris is very quick and sometimes i have the feeling that, <laughs> that she never sleeps <laughs> maybe she doesn't yeah <laughs> yeah but, yeah What about you personally? When do you plan to go back there? And what would you like to see when you do? Mm, I definitely should go back next year. But with the pandemic, Corona, all is so insecure to plan and arrange. I really would love to spend two or three weeks, maybe even four weeks together with them. And especially to discuss further proceeding and next projects to bring loose Desperance on a complete next level. Integrating all the people living there, integrating all the slum area. I don't like the world slum. And getting closer together, uh, just helping each other much more in a more intense way. Yeah. So what have you learned about yourself from helping this community with their day-to-day -day lives? Mm. I went there with special ideas about what I wanted to achieve and the range. You know, when you leave for a project, you have a certain idea And what to do there? And very, very quickly, I had to understand that nothing of my glorious and academic ideas worked there. But really, <laughs> you are laughing. Really, you know this kind of situation. Really, nothing worked there. The world there was so different. They had no clue how to get along with all these circumstances. I had no clue how to solve My brain, by mind, all this. And I, I truly spoke, I totally collapsed. So I just had to trust my intuition, open my heart and just let go any idea how, of how it has to be. I learned so much from these guys. Essentially, I learned when we reach ourselves by heart, there is no difference among us. We are so much all the same with the essential wish 
of being accepted, of being loved, of being seen by the other. It was absolutely heart-opening for me. When we reach out in a sense of helping hands and by heart and respect, we get so close to each other. There is nothing that we cannot achieve. And in the end, we are so much the same regardless of our surrounding, where, where we live or in which culture we live how many money we have in our bank account it's all the same yeah one world that's for sure yeah yeah but what about your own life udo do you see it differently as a result of your actions yeah andy you know this you never come back home from a trip being the same person as when you left you know this quite well and some trips leave a bigger and more intense trace and footprint on you and i would say Calcutta, Mother Teresa's hospice, and definitely Luz de Esperanza, was a time that went through and through to me and really absorbed me totally. It even became part of me, of my thinking, of my life. And my world became so much bigger. My world does not end up at European borders anymore. I think when Doris would call me today, that she's not okay. I just would take a plane and get there. Everything became so close to me. There is no limit of distance anymore. It seems that when we get close by our heart, this effect cancels all the geographical distance. Even different opinions do not count anymore. Yeah, geographical distance does not exist anymore. And I learned so intensively that deep inside... We are all the same, regardless culture, religion, color of skin, money in our pockets. It's, and you mentioned it one question before. It's all one heart. When we meet there in our hearts, nothing separates us, really nothing. No, I'd agree with that. So if these people do have access to the internet, they'd be able to listen to this podcast. So what would your message be to the people who have received help from this, from yourself and your colleagues and, and for this project at uh, Luz de Esperanza? Poor Andy, uh, with some of your questions, you, you get me right into the heart. <laughs> and when I told them in these days that I will present Luz de Esperanza on a BMW and Andy Dukes platform, <laughs> they 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 totally freaked out. They could not believe that. It was totally from a, a different world. For the guys, it was like if we saw an UFO landing in our neighbor's garden, coming out green creatures or something like that. <laughs> but to the core of a question, I even would not know what to tell them, truly spoken, Andy. I just would stand there and... Let them feel how brave they are, how extraordinary they are, and that they are doing well, and that they have all my respect and heart, well, and love. So the message is quite simple. So let's stay together and do this path, walk along this path. That's it. And it's not a big deal. We just just let us do that 
Udo, thanks ever so much for sharing this uh, heartwarming story with us. I really appreciate what you're doing over there with your colleagues as well. And I'm sure if there are any BMW riders who are traveling in South America at some point, they'll be uh, sure to look that place up and uh, perhaps see what they, they can should do, to do help. that. Yeah. They should do that. Okay. Well, I wish season's greetings to uh, you and all your loved ones. And thanks for spending this time with us on Ride and Talk. All the best for you and your family, Andy. And. Thanks to all the BMW people who, who made that realize. Thanks to to you, Andy, for all your time and and effort that you made here with me. Thanks a lot. I'm very thankful, really, really, really. And all the best for you and good luck to everyone. Have a safe trip wherever you go. Thanks, Udo. Big respect to you for all you're doing to help those kids so far away in South America. I'm aware of quite a few other people within the BMW Motorrad community who are doing great things to help those in need. And often there are motorcycles involved, whether it be in distributing disaster relief, water aid, or even stationary supplies in African schools. The list goes on. But there are lots of other positive stories that I don't know about. So if you're involved in a charitable project making a difference with your BMW riding friends, then let us know and we'll try and feature you on our social media channels. And who knows? maybe on a future Ride and Talk podcast. Well, that's it from Udo and myself for now. I wish you all the best for the remainder of this year, and let's hope that 2021 brings us the good news that we're hoping for. Stay safe and take care out there. Bye for now.